0: You are listening to the Pragmatic Christian Podcast with your host, Hayden Bruce.
1: Today, my guests are Simone and Malcolm Collins, who are the authors of the new Amazon bestseller, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, a guide to creating your own answers to life's biggest questions. Malcolm got a start as a neuroscientist exploring the evolution of human cognition and has work displayed at the Smithsonian. He went on to pursue an MBA at Stanford, where he met his wife, Simone, who at the time was director of marketing at HubPages.com, managing a team of 20,000 freelancers. Together, they co-founded the art commission marketplace, Artcorgi.com and run a number of travel companies, such as TravelMax. They later founded the Pragmatist Foundation, created to encourage self-reflection and assist individuals in challenging their most deeply held beliefs. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to help support us, you can do so by following us on Twitter at PragmaticChrist or sharing the podcast or the website PragmaticChristian.com with your friends and family. For as little as a dollar a month, you can also support us on Patreon. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I'm really enjoying doing this, and I hope you guys are too. So without further ado, here is Malcolm and Simone Collins.
0: Don't expect us to know all the nuanced phrases and everything
1: like that. No, Um, and it's funny that that was your example, because I would say that you guys are deconstructionists. You guys deconstruct everything. (laughs) That's kind of what you guys do.
2: This is our problem, Hayden. It's, it's the, it's that we, um, we, we don't, we, we believe in a lot of these schools of thought and could be categorized as them, but we feel like it's so impractical yeah. to get into the academic minutiae because mm-hmm. whenever you do that whenever you get into an academic society around a philosophy or whenever you get into a group it always ends up being about semantics and small interpretations and but so and so said this but no you're misinterpreting it or this word actually means this and right. and instead of, of actually d- discussing something of substance they spend all their time just basically playing a dominance hierarchy game yeah and that's exactly contrary
0: to what this we're is going something for. you probably want on recording because this is something i Feel that people do need to hear. Oh, Oh, no,
1: I'm recording. (laughs) The conversation has begun. (laughs) Okay. Because I'm loving this.
0: Dominance hierarchy games, I mean, I think it's important that to sort of understand that it really is just a classic dominance hierarchy play where you have two people or a group of people and people signal their status based on, you know, whatever the group agrees has value. Uh, tacitly, which is typically philosophical understanding or, you know, thought about a particular topic. And so they signal their value to other members of the group by being able to mention terms or concepts that other people of the group aren't fully familiar with. And as soon as a member agrees that, Oh, could you explain that to me? They're signaling that they're a lower member within the dominance hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, very similar to how people are, you know, playing. I don't know the the, the EDM or like metal dominance hierarchy. Yeah, no,
2: like you don't know which house, you disgusting noob.
0: Yeah, like <laughs> <tourist>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it detracts from meaningful conversation about a topic. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I completely agree, and there's a, a very good case to be made that like all these, all these technical words and jargon, you know, in almost any any field of knowledge or any academic field, I mean, almost all of it turns out to just be shibboleths in like the practical, um like engaging of conversation and discussion of these things. Um you're figuring out who's in, who's out, who knows what, who doesn't, and if you don't know the like latest uh jargon word that means, you know, this whole school of thought, if you don't have an understanding of that, then it's like, oh okay, now I can now I can dismiss your ideas. I can dismiss Um, The work that you're doing because you're obviously not up to date. And I feel like um, that happens everywhere, especially, you know, my background is in the church and in Christianity, and that certainly uh, takes place in the church, in religions. Um, And I think that there's a very uh, good argument to be made, a very pragmatic argument to be made that... All of these philosophical and theological conversations, um, and you can even say academic conversations in almost any field, all of it is you know when you br- when you <laughs> when you break it down is all about belonging and all about like who's in the group, who's not in the group, and arguing over words that you know the only practical bearing that they have in reality is. You know, where do they place you in that social hierarchy? Where do they place you in the group? Um, Are you in? Are you out? Are you in the inner circle of that group? Um, So I I'm actually with you guys. That's actually why I was led to uh, philosophical pragmatism, which we don't have to talk about today. But you guys are certainly pragmatists because the pragmatists are all about, okay. well, what do these what do all these jargon words mean? In real life, like, how are we actually using them? Like, you can talk about, um, you know, deep philosophical or theological issues. But what are those issues or those ideas or those words actually doing in the group? And most of the time, those words are just, you know, uh, group identity markers. Um, So there's a good case to be made that even though an idea can be logical, we really just use these ideas to mark where we are in the social hierarchy. Um, So I agree with you guys that...
2: So what, what I love about this is, like, here we are talking about gatekeeping, and, and it, it's a really good example of how our human instincts basically throw us under the bus and stop us from moving forward because we have this, this inherent need to be in a good position in the dominance hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so we start, you know, without even realizing it um, – doing these gatekeeping behaviors in a way that really hurts useful, productive debate. But yeah. one thing I've noticed that I've been able to engineer with myself is let's say you have some sort of human instinct that's that's, that's counterproductive. You can leverage other human instincts to stop yourself from doing that. So I started following our gatekeeping on Reddit mm-hmm. where people basically like find examples of people gatekeeping online, post them, and we all laugh at them. <laughs> and because I've trained myself to contextualize gatekeeping behavior as something I deride and make fun of, I, I find myself catching myself when I do it and then feeling ashamed because, oh, no, the group will reject me because I'm gatekeeping. Yeah. So there are ways for us to, to basically socially engineer ourselves into behaving in a way that we we – uh, logically rationally want but the funny thing is is that we have to leverage emotion and stupid human instincts to do that but
0: to take it back well, we're still fairly early in the podcast to sort of the core point or an introduction of some sort um he was talking a bit about the traditional pragmatists um which while our uh sort of worldview aligns pretty closely was theirs you know they're focused on functionalism and everything like that yeah Um, It's not exactly theirs. When we call ourselves pragmatists, we meet it in the most vernacular sense possible. Right. Which is simply that, um, like, when we break it down into just a couple simple points, um, we believe you should decide— what you want to maximize in your life, like what you're trying to achieve with your life, decide what sources of, you know, uh, evidence and inquiry that you think have value when deciding how you're going to create hypotheses about how to maximize that thing and then design yourself to maximize those things. Yeah. Like nothing more complicated than that, but that puts us in a very interesting position sort of within a lot of what you're seeing within... Uh, the Christian secular community interaction right now, mm-hmm. because where you see um, a lot of Christian secular interaction right now is that I guess I would call it the, let's say, wishy-washy ends of both spectrum, mm. you know, the more sort of Unitarian Universalist Christians interacting with the atheists who think that you know well maybe everything's sort of true to an extent well a
2: lot of it seems to be motivated by virtue signaling yes which is like i accept
0: everyone in in our
2: in our world view with which is full of prejudice and hubris and all sorts of wonderful terrible things we really look down upon anyone whose behaviors in life are built around reinforcing a certain image of themselves that they they see as as valuable. We see that there's, there's sort of two ways to live life. A lot of people live lives to maximize their value. Like
0: they want to say, I'm a good person. I want to see myself as a good person. And so they pretend to believe a bunch of things that was in our current societal framework reinforces that.
2: And And so their whole life becomes about trying to reinforce this, not even thought through self-image Whereas what we think you should be doing is is trying to maximize something of
0: inherent value. Or, or determine what's true and then maximize that, which yeah. puts us more in line with what we may be, I guess, what we would call secular Christians. I don't know if I'm super happy with, with the label atheist. Yeah. Um, much closer— to, you know, sort of pre- and post-trib, like, evangelical Christians than we are to more wishy-washy sort of Christian communities that are just, like, it's all different ways of seeing the same thing because we believe very strongly, like, it's totally okay to believe whatever you want to believe, but at least believe it. You know, truth isn't a team sport. It's not about making you look good in society. It's about saying, okay, okay. Um, here is my source of information that I'm using to decide what I think is true about the world. And then I'm using those truths to determine my behavior and it doesn't matter and wh- wh- how society interacts with that behavior. What matters is that it's maximizing what I need to maximize in life.
1: Right. So, um, does, so uh, do you both have a background in Christianity? Maybe we can, um, uh, continue the conversation with uh some of the some of your background some of your history i'd love to talk about um how you guys met and i think that that'll lead into more of the topics that we want to discuss uh, but maybe you guys can talk a little bit about your backgrounds um and that'll lead into how we met so um simone you can begin and then um you know malcolm you can talk about your background um and then maybe we can converge into your guys's meeting
2: that sounds good um I was born in Japan. I was a mistake baby of a formerly (laughs) polyamorous hippie Bay Area couple um, that uh, referred to themselves Silicon
0: Valley tech people, San Francisco people.
2: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) like literally. Um, That that referred to themselves throughout my upbringing as born again Buddhists. Um, Mm. When I I went to a Mormon preschool where I learned about Jesus and and some facets of of Christianity-ish. And when I started speaking to my mother about that and and about what happens to me after I die— she got a little bit concerned about me growing up as a Mormon child, um, in my wonderful, wholesome Mormon preschool, which was the happiest place on earth and wanted me to, um, become a Buddhist like them and, and took me to temple where I learned about Buddhism. Um, and growing up in the Bay area, I was trained to, to aspire to some level of transcendence and, and very much, I think like a lot of the atheists that, that you may interact with who are trying to reach across the aisle and interact with Christians to sort of look good um, to themselves, and to other people. I, I wanted to understand all religions. I, I took trips every year to different religious spots around the world to try to understand them and reach some level of transcendence. And then in college, I had this very embarrassing but still very enlightening episode in which I fell in love with a very devout Catholic. Well, not fell in love. But oh, I, God, I love this story. I developed an intense— This is
0: the first time you're telling it publicly, by the way. Oh,
2: Jesus. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I developed a very intense infatuation. Um, with a, a very passionate Catholic in a, a, a college class on and the only way you were
0: able to interact. on Dante's
2: Di- divine comedy. And uh, I, I, I didn't want him to know that I had a crush on him because I sort of I, 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 I tend to develop crushes on very passionate people who are love a concept and are very passionate about it. So the only way that I can interact with him was I, I worked at a cupcake shop with, at the time, and he was an RA of his dorm. And I would work closing shifts and then bring hundreds of cupcakes to his dorm under the the, the cover that I was bringing cupcakes to his, you know, his, his dorm mates that he would then use as like, you know, to get them to be responsible or whatever. But then I would come over with these cupcakes and say like, oh, hey, but, you know, I have this question about. Catholicism. I have this question about Christian dogma. Can you help me, you know, talk, talk me through it, explain why this is, this is really tough. This is a tough truth. Or here's what seems to me a conflict. And what, the reason I was so infatuated by him was that he had these beautiful, eloquent, thought through logical answers. And I learned so much about
0: Christianity and just how beautiful Well,
2: yeah. And specifically Catholicism, but also Christianity. No,
0: they, they, they sorry. I grew up from a Baptist background.
2: Okay, so yeah, it's like saying Which I don't know is a anything Christian. about. Yeah, that's okay. True. Continue, but anyway. Um, so I, I learned so much, and I was just so inspired by it all, um, and it was amazing. But ironically, my my attempts to I don't know do something about the fact that I had a crush on him were completely counterproductive because, like, at the end of a summer, after we, you know. Uh, after my various furtive attempts to get him to like open up to me in his Mm. dorm about religion and whatnot, he, he told me, you know, Simone, I really want to thank you for these conversations. This has been really helpful to me and you helped me understand that what I need to do is become a Catholic priest. And
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was the opposite of my goal. You swear women for your entire life. I, oh,
2: this is this is how much game I had. How do you um, take
1: something like that?
0: <laughs> he works at the Vatican now too. Well,
2: the last time oh, wow. I saw him was was in Vatican City when he was going through. I think he's a a deacon now. Ah, uh, he's doing very well. I, I, I mean, it yeah, no, <laughs> I makes mean, the, the the Catholic Church is so lucky to have him because he's such an intellectual, honest, passionate, open. Mm-hmm. Like, anyway.
0: But you're playing a little too far into. I mean, yeah. I think it's an entertaining story because of the 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 conflict between what she was trying to achieve and what. <laughs> you know.
2: But long story short, like I sort of grew up thinking, like, oh, you know, I just need to understand all religions and they're all great. Um, but ultimately, I was someone and then she who, met Malcolm. Yeah, it was
0: like, that's not true. <laughs> I, I,
2: I, I was just one of those people who didn't know what they wanted, just listened to everyone else and did what everyone else said. And yes, when I met Malcolm, so I turned 24 and I was a virgin, never slept with anyone, never dated anyone and just never made time for it. Plus, as you know, I have terrible game. So uh, I decided that in that year I had to fall in love and have my heart broken and, and then live the rest of my life alone. But I needed to still know what love was so that I could say that it was underwhelming and I tried it and I wasn't missing out. Um, and in the midst of my campaign, which involved points based competitive dating systems to encourage myself to you know get out and date. So I made my office like compete with me date wise and um, points based systems to evaluate my dates. I met Malcolm. And he sat across from me at dinner, and after telling me on our first date, like basically at moment one, that he wasn't looking to date. He was looking for a wife and expected to find her that fall at Stanford because I was insufficiently qualified, and he knew that all <laughs> the things would be there. He he then also just told me his whole life philosophy and how he came to the conclusions he came to and what he was going for and how he'd experimented so far with different strategies. And that was the first time I'd ever met someone who had literally thought through, in a logically consistent way, um, what they believed and why they believed it. And I was so captured by that. And then he turned around and asked me why I believed what I believed, and I could not give him a straight answer or a good answer, and, and it threw me into this existential crisis. And ultimately, he, he helped me find my own answers, and then he helped me build my own strategies, and he helped me build my own identity. And that whole process that he worked me through both completely revolutionized my career. I mean, I went from being a social media manager to the director of marketing at at the startup I worked at. And then we started our own companies and went into VC. And now we run a business in multiple countries with quite a few investors and employees and everything. So it changed my life. But then we decided to write that process into a book titled The Pragmatist Guide to Life, Um, first intending just for that to be for our kids, but then realizing it's fairly useful Um, And and so that's sort of how we got to where we got. And now we're very passionate about – Well,
0: the core thing there is that there's just no source you can go to these days that's going to help you think through what you believe without trying to guide you along a specific path.
1: Yeah. So that's a good segue. But if we could um, go – back a little bit. I, I would like to hear a little bit more about uh, Malcolm's background, because I think that that might give a little bit more context to some of the things that we talk about. Um, so Malcolm, if you could give us a little bit of a bio on your end, what led you up to that moment being able to sit across you know, the table and say, look, I'm looking for a wife? <laughs> what what led you to that moment?
0: So if you're talking about from a religious perspective, which is sort of or a Christian perspective, which is sort of what you're looking at. I mean, my family's history is the one after another of Southern Baptists with strong Calvinist leanings, you know, being, uh, you know, running churches, founding churches across Texas and stuff like that, until my dad's generation, which did the whole '80s, you know, '70s hippie thing, um, and and uh, I don't know, took some sort of a vague view of spirituality and and and, and life, which uh, did not jive as much. For me as sort of my ancestral sort of view of life. Um, And I wanted to know more specifically what I should do with my life and why. Um, And I began to really study how people change their minds on things, how they come to these conclusions. I focused a lot early on on cults and how cults, you know, convince people and transform people to be whoever, you know, to, to completely change their personality to an extent in the way they're reacting to environmental stimuli, which made me sort of think through, well, is that something I can control? And then when I learned it was very easy to sort of control who you are as a person and how you react to things, the question mm-hmm. became, then, well, what should I be trying to optimize for? <coughs> um, and I began focusing really hard on, you know, trying to determine what to optimize for, trying to build a philosophical framework for this. Um, but, uh, I mean, primarily for me, um, I, I, I guess, yeah, so that's sort of my traditional or, or religious background. Um, and then I built sort of a framework and a system, and it was something that Simone sort of started to follow early on, and a lot of other people through the, the nonprofit we run have started um, uh, gravitating towards called the Pragmatist Foundation, and all the money from our book goes to that. But we're very dedicated towards its cause, which is we think that there is sort of a force in society right now trying to push everyone to this sort of beige mess of beliefs that is a compromise of every belief system in the world without saying, you know, no, I mean, there are truths and there are things that aren't true. And I wouldn't say I have any more access to truths than somebody who is, you know, an evangelical Christian who has sought through it. I mean, there's sort of different categories. There's evangelical Christians because, you know, their parents are evangelical Christians, and there's evangelical Christians with, like, a strong logical framework behind what they believe. Um, and sort of where, um, where can you ex- I- extract these truths And one thing, you know, Simone was talking about Catholicism, and I interrupted there, but I think it's an interesting sort of a concept that relates to our worldview, the pragmatist worldview, which is relevant in sort of the Catholic, non-Catholic split in the church, you know, the the Reformation period. This idea that as, as, you know, suppose you identify as an atheist, right, and you're trying to, to decide what you think is a scientific truth. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's sort of two paths you can go down. One path is you can become super educated in science, read all the literature, uh, read all of the studies, and then from those studies derive what you think are sort of scientific truth. Or so you can say that that's really impossible for me to do with any sort of a normal life. Um, and so, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to believe what the experts in this field believe, what yeah. people who have been studying this for their entire lives believe about, uh, you know, what a career head of their field psychologist thinks about these topics. Um, and I think it's really interesting when you contextualize sort of the reformation along those lines um, between do you believe the experts or do you believe what the text says? Um, And uh, I think that it's very interesting if you look at many of the um, sort of Protestant traditions that have derived from the Reformation, they've gone back to the original sort of Catholic way of looking at the Bible, which is, well, you know, as long as you just sort of follow what the experts say, then you'll be good. And you don't actually need to, like, super read the Bible in detail and understand it in its historical context. Um, which I think is very interesting.
1: And you're coming from a uh, scientific background, right?
0: Yeah, I used to be a neuroscientist. I have stuff on display at the Smithsonian. I've been published in, in scientific writings uh, as a neuroscientist.
1: And then uh, have you done much work in, uh, like, neuropsychology or evolutionary psychology as well?
0: Yes, I have. The stuff I have put at the Smithsonian is evolutionary sort of sites. well, evolutionary anthropology stuff, which has some psychology sort of underpinnings. And then, um, I've always been really focused on brain computer interface was one of my main areas, Mm -hmm. but I focused a lot on just sort of, um, evolution of cognition and then really looking at it from the perspective of stuff like what can we learn from cults and stuff like that about the evolution of cognition, if cults can so completely transform a person's cognition, what does that tell us about the vulnerability of our own sort of cognition?
1: Yeah, I'm very fascinated with cults as well, Um, just as case studies of the human mind and psychology, what we are capable of, um, the fact that narratives can be uh, given to people and people can be manipulated, but that also shows that our, our belief our belief systems, um, we're able to change. We're able to grow. We are, you know, our brains are plastic and we can actually, um, take on other people's narratives. So if we can take on other people's narratives and change completely, uh, what's to stop us from, um, choosing our own narratives and choosing our own values and our own beliefs and becoming the people that we want to be, um, I think that 's a good segue into you know some of some more of your guys' ideas. I just wanted to um, emphasize that you guys are coming from a background of well, first of all, your personal experience, but then also, um, you know, a neuropsychological um, evolutionary framework. Um, so you guys do understand the inner workings of the you know, of human psychology. So these aren't just like, here are some of our ideas that we picked up. It's no, these <laughs> are <laughs> some, you know, this stuff is informed. I just wanted to, like, emphasize that. Um, so well, I, what's
0: that? What I would say is, is they are informed, but I don't necessarily believe that... So I have my own standards for the way I judge what is truth, and Mm -hmm. I follow sort of scientific... I actually follow expert consensus within the scientific field, while Simone tries to more look at individual studies within the scientific field to decide what's actually true about human cognition. Um, But that doesn't mean that we think that other ways of looking at what is true are necessarily worse. There's some ways of looking at what is true that we think are just dumb. Like this makes me look good or this makes me look nice. But if somebody says, look, I believe the Bible because I don't know, like most of the smartest people throughout human history have believed the Bible was a source of of objective truth. And I've applied sort of, you know, some historical Christianity understandings and stuff like that. And, 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 To try and determine what is true, you know, I I would say that I don't think that they have less of an understanding of cognition than we do. Um, I would say ours is probably a little bit more predictive just because it's looking at predictive behavior patterns. But I don't want to say that our understanding of these topics is only from the perspective of neuroscience or an assumption that evolution is correct.
1: Yeah, I, I love that, and that leads into an idea that you guys discuss in your book um, about standards of evidence. Can you guys talk a little bit more about choosing your standard of evidence and why that's important and what kind of standards there are?
0: Well, I mean the two standards I just really talked about a bit right there is So like if you're trying to decide um, – you know, some of the core ones that are probably most important from someone of a, of a, a strong Christian background is do I trust dogma? right? Mm -hmm. Is it the Bible itself or a specific tradition within the Christian tree that I trust most
2: or a specific version of the Bible in a specific language, right?
0: Or is it, do I trust the, the consensus of experts that have spent a long time studying this? And obviously experts argue about things, but I think if I divorce myself from the religious context and let's talk about science, right? Right. A lot of scientists say, oh, I believe what the data says and what the research says, or I believe what scientific consensus says, and of course, I don't believe my own personal experiences over science. And I would say, well, if that's the way, because personal experiences are like another standard of evidence, right? Yeah. If that's the case, you never would have been Darwin, because what Darwin had to do was he had to look at his personal experiences and say, huh, if these personal experiences are correct... Every expert in the field is totally wrong. And um, uh, all of the data that they've collected and the data they've shown, at least in the way it's been interpreted in the past, is totally wrong. So, this idea that there are obviously correct sort of standards of evidences for different sort of worldviews or tribes that you may belong to, I think is where people are, you know, really get things wrong. And I think you see this with, um, you know, Christian communities and dogma, which is, if you actually take the time to sort of analyze what the Bible really says, not everything it says is going to fit well within modern societal archetypes or structures.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And not everything that it says is going to market well to people to get the largest number of followers in a parish that is preaching what the Bible actually says. And because of that, it means more likely than not, if you follow dogma, if you're like, look, I'm going to look at what the Bible says and what I think you know, Jesus most likely meant within this context, um, you're going to be on the out of most large, even evangelical factions. Because evangelical factions grow because they market well. And that means that the largest Christian factions within any community are going to be the, the ideas that market themselves back, that, that market themselves best, and not the ideas that are truest to the tradition as you're analyzing it. And I could go on about this a lot because I, I think there's a lot of sort of interesting nuance points here where you have people say, oh, it doesn't really matter because like you know if um an idea is really common within like baptist or protestant communities then it must be true because god would only let like true ideas become popular understandings of christianity right. and you know maybe the bible was never or it might have been altered over time but god wouldn't have let it be altered in meaningful ways and then you're like yeah but also the gnostic gospels existed and controlled the lives of large communities you know, in the Middle East for like at least a couple generations and God let that happen. So you can't say that the Bible hasn't been altered. You can't say that God wouldn't allow the Bible to be altered in a big way because, you know, if you have, uh, if you believe because it, it did happen, it did happen. I mean, if you believe in recorded history, which most Christians do, you believe it did happen. Right. And I would
2: add one thing to it, which when it comes to standards of evidence, I hear this a lot, especially from atheist groups as they say, well, I believe in science, and I'm right. an atheist. It's my standard of evidence. When they're not apparently acknowledging the fact that the, the scientists that built the foundations of science were devout Christians, if not like members of clergy. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really bothers me that there's there's sometimes this falsely forced separation of standard of evidence, like well Christian standards. Hold on, that's not a
0: falsely force. That is a strictly forced separation. You might be saying that they should respect the heritage they came from more, but that does not mean that both are kind of true. Which is sort of what you're implying and what you're saying, which is sort of wishy washy. I don't
2: know I don't know what you mean by that. No,
0: you're saying that the fact that science derived from the clergy means that the clergy had some access to truth. No no no, science I'm saying that, you can, to, that but you're trying to create a common ground which implies that, which I don't think is helpful.
2: No, I'm trying to say that having science as a standard of evidence doesn't mean that you're not a Christian or that you can't have Yes, it science. does.
0: Yes, it does.
2: I disagree with you on that.
0: Uh, It can mean that you've somehow twisted Christianity into saying that it agrees with the mainstream scientific consensus, but that requires huge logical twists. Nothing about what the Bible says, if you believe it from a dogmatic perspective, or what Jesus meant, if you look at him from a historical context, agrees with the mainstream scientific view today. As much as that Catholic Church, I understand that's your background, has tried to twist things to say that.
1: But I think that's the key of what you just said that that's dogmatic or what a lot of people like to call fundamentalist Christianity which really if you do a historical account like that's only about a hundred years old like this fundamentalism that we know today that the Bible is literally true like that was a decision that was made in the Protestant um, church uh, you know around a hundred years ago I can't remember exactly when it was around the turn of the century so there are other yeah, there are will. other yeah. streams and I think that's important to realize especially in our democratic you know, the last hundred years has really been like a very democratic, diverse, um, uh, world that we live in. There are, you know, I would say, I would venture to say that every single individual that is a Christian at this point has their own specific denomination, if you will. Um, you know, like we live in such a diverse, such a globalized, um, world in the West that, everyone's Christianity is a completely different thing. I really enjoy the work of, um, uh, Andrew Newberg, who is a neuroscientist who studies, uh, th- like the, pretty much what theology and belief and faith does to the brain. And, oh. um, he's done, uh, studies on like the image of God to individuals. And everyone has a different image of God, uh, when mm-hmm. you actually like suss it out. And so I, I'm, I, I agree with you, um, Malcolm, that there are things that are inconsistent. Um, and I do think it's, it is useful to, um, talk about like the differences or the distinctions between these things. But I also think that there is a common view, um, to Simone's point or a common, um, I think that there's common intuitions going on, um, on the psychological level that have led, you know, even the most uh, religious or spiritual or magical people to eventually, you know, evolve a method of science, Um, You know, because everybody is looking out into the world and I really enjoy the um, evolutionary psychologists who study religion, who point out, like, look at what like um, what humans were able to learn about the psychology of humanity just by their observations over thousands of years. Like we will, you know, take magic, take um, science out of the equation. And if you give enough time to all of these super learners, which is what, you know, human beings are, eventually they're going to pick up on things. And I really enjoy the view. And it's been very, uh, edifying for me personally to view the Bible and view these, uh, ancient texts and myths, um, through that lens. So when I read the Bible, when I read the Genesis story, I'm like, I'm asking myself, what is this saying about humanity? Or what is this saying about the human predicament? You know, especially during this time. Um, you know, uh, do you have a thought
0: about that? Well, so I would say we have sort of two thoughts about that. I mean, what I would love to question you is so where you believe that the specific tradition that you are a part of, if you think that it's evolved so much over time, what iteration of it do you think has the most access to like truth, and how are you judging that truth? But secondly, something you brought up that I'd really love to double-click on and expand on when you talk about, like, pragmatic Christianity Mm -hmm. is—so you have a Christian tradition, and then you have somebody looking at, like, okay, how do different people perceive God in their minds, right? And, okay, people are perceiving God in different ways, but, you know, here are some ways that appear more often, or here are some ways that appear within different cultures. Um,
2: Here are the top search results. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, uh, and then my question to you would be sort of, what do you derive from that? Like, how does that help affect your beliefs or your own perception of, of, of the image of God? Or do you just think that study has no relevance to the, I don't know, real or true understanding of an image of God and where can you derive meaningful evidence to determine
1: that? Um, I'm trying to pick out the specific question that you're asking. Are you asking? Okay. Okay.
0: So, so you mentioned a study about the image of God and you said everybody has a different image of God, right? Yeah. Um, And so what I'm asking you is so, okay, you personally, as a pragmatic Christian, you're trying to determine probably the, the, I'm just asking you like a question. You're trying to say, okay, what's probably the closest to accurate image of God, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not asking you what you believe the closest to accurate image to God is. I'm asking you where you derive the evidence for that belief. Behavior. Is it from studies like this? Is it from the Bible? Is it from what you feel is most likely to be true? I mean, if we're talking standards of evidence, I just find this a very interesting question.
1: Yeah. So my standard of evidence is in behavior. It's in um interactions, actions, what we can observe, what we can see um in the real world. So, you know, for me, uh results or consequences matter more than origins for everything. Because uh, especially when it comes to history and the study of history, um, and you know, we can't go back thousands of years. We have developed scientific methods for measuring certain things about time and how things were thousands of years ago, but we cannot go back. So it's useless for me to hold up a, rep- a representationalist or a mirror theory of truth when it comes to history, especially when it comes to history that's so far back, because you can't. So you cannot have an image in your head that mirrors the reality of, you know, 10,000 years ago. So it's useless. Yeah. So as a pragmatist, that's a useless way of viewing uh, truth, especially historical truth. So what I like to, um, you know, my, my way of thinking is very much influenced by um, both science. I have, a, I have, I revere science, uh, but also um, behavioralist um, and consequentialist uh, ways of thinking about the world uh which is what you know pragmatism is um i so for me i'm not so for me truth truth is what works you know which is usually how pragmatism is um hmm. is characterized but truth is what puts human beings in working relation with reality what allow what ideas what beliefs what theories puts us in working relation relationship with um, with reality, with our environment. I'm very much influenced um, by you know evolutionary theory, um, and that kind of takes a um, a prevalence in the way that I think about the world. And so for me, what is true is that which allows us to be in the best working relationship or harmony with um, with reality, and that has to do with values. Um, and that has to do with beliefs and all this different stuff, but we can't, um, I don't, you know, like you were saying earlier about standards of evidence. I don't, I don't, um, I don't, uh, prioritize one over the other. If the one that is considered an outdated mode, um, puts me in working relationship with the world. So my idea of God is what, Ever that idea of God leads me to behave as. So I like to say, um, if you believe in a God that leads you to act like an asshole, then your God is an asshole and it's wrong. <laughs> you know, like I, 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 I'm very comfortable with creating a hierarchy of values, a hierarchy of beliefs and truth uh, claims. Um, and I think that the ones that are higher up on that hierarchy are the ones that lead people, human beings, because you know, that's what we're working with. I don't really care how a rock navigates the, real, you know, reality. I care about human beings because that's what I am. And that's the brain that I am working with is a human brain. So what ideas, what beliefs, what values put human beings into working relation with reality? And so um, that requires of me to have, you know, basically a priori values. And I understand that. And that's just something that I can't at this point in my in my studies, and my reflection, I can't see us doing away with. I have to value ethics. I have to value, um, I value love. I value um, survival, but I value survival in a ethical way, you know, and those are a priori um, values that, you know, and I, you know, I don't think that those things are objectively true, but I live my life as if they are objectively true. So my standard of evidence is behavior. And that which is true is what puts people in working relation. And that's really how, uh, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing that pragmatism as a philosophy has helped me. Uh, practically in my life, because before that I was working with all sorts of different assumptions um, and different you know worldviews it 's like, okay, am I going to be a you know a fundamentalist Christian and believe this way? you know how is that working in real life or am I going to be an atheist and reject all those things For me, it was unsatisfactory to go in any one um, of those you know dual choices I mean I know that there 's hundreds of different choices of you know worldviews and ideas, but I really am you know to what Simone was talking about earlier, I am looking for a common um, you know, a common faith, a common, you know, what are the common values that we can all agree on? Because those are, you know, good starting places. You know, I like to think about acts, about these things as axioms. I like to know, like, what is, um, the at least statements that we can make, you know, what are the, you know, very, very low foundational things that we can work from as a group? Cause you know, I am at least personally working towards, um, you know, a, I'm trying to expand the group identity to human. That's my personal goal in life is to do my part in expanding the group identity, to human, um, and doing that without, um, you know, creating this beige humanity that you were talking about. (laughs) I, you know, I, I think there are differences and I think there's beauty and diversity. um, but yeah, so those are just some of my thoughts to that question. I know I talked for a while. I don't even know how long I was talking, but...
2: Um, well, this is super interesting that we want to understand better what you mean by working relationship because we only speak well, we amongst each other in, in like five-year-old terms. So when you say working relationship, are you saying you see cause and effect and whatever you believe is true is something that builds a predictable model for cause and effect?
1: Um. Not necessarily. So I, okay. so I, I think I, I follow uh, William James and Nietzsche in the, um, in the insight that truth always has values connected to it. So I personally uh, differentiate truth from fact. Fact is just fact. Fact hmm. is what is out there. A rock existing, you know, in my backyard—that's a fact. What I as a human being do with it. Uh, and can do with it. That's where truth comes in. You know, the things that I can actually do with it. But to say that a rock is true is kind of a meaningless statement, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think that truth always has an aspect of value and always has an aspect of action and verb um, where fact can be uh, descriptive. But even, you know, those things are always fuzzy because when we talk about facts, we are always coming from uh, a biased position. We're always doing something with our descriptions, usually as human beings. Like we are, you know, deep down to our, you know, most basic evolutionary core. We are tool, Uh, You know, tool using human beings We are using ideas, uh, objects Each other as tools You know, everything has a function So I'm working from that um, You know, from that background So I differentiate facts You know, I can look at cause and effect And and learn facts I believe in facts I'm not a relativist that thinks that everything is relative Everything is in our head I'm certainly not a solipsist Where I think that all reality is in my brain Um, I just think that for the human animal Um, thinking about fact, truth, all these different things, they all kind of get uh, intertwined. So I think it is useful to differentiate these things. But, you know, I think it is a very difficult thing because people have been arguing about these things. You know, like you were saying in the beginning, philosophers have been trying to find, you know, like the perfect logical explanation for all, you know, the differences for all these things. But at the end of the day, uh, the human being can't be cut up into such neat boxes um, I think that these things always intertwine with each other in some way or some form.
0: If, if I may word it in a different way, I feel like what he's saying, Simone, is so what we would consider sort of cliche ethics, like human happiness matters, love matters, that sort of stuff. The mm-hmm. stuff that we don't believe. Like, okay. like we don't to that stuff. We call it like sort of a cliche ethics. What you do is you look for uh, beliefs that optimize outcomes within cliché ethical school of thoughts, like, again, human suffering is bad, like, if you can minimize that, and if a belief minimizes human suffering within a community, then it's more likely to be true. Um, And so you judge the truth of a belief by how the practitioners of that belief affect the sort of community and the world around them as well as their own internal models of themselves and then you ascribe beliefs as being more true if they optimize sort of generic ethics.
1: Uh, yeah, but it doesn't always have to be ethical. I just think that as human beings, those those uh, factors always play in in some way. Um, but I can have a belief about something that is, you know, that we can try to come up with like the least ethical, ex, you know, example. Um, like if I have a belief. Dude, I want to hear
0: that. Come on, let's go.
1: Well, if I have a belief that, um, <laughs> you know, if I have a belief that stop signs mean stop, you know, like that's a belief based on, uh, you know, social. Um, yeah. What's the word? Yeah. Um, social norms like i have to stop yeah, for this yeah. thing and so my belief leads me to stop when i see that sign you know like it's a sign that has significance mm-hmm. i know what that means and so my belief leads me to stop if i and don't
0: cause social outcomes from the perspective of generic sort of ethics
1: right if you do uh, zoom out those do have uh, ethical or social implications. If I if I decide to, you know, not believe in the significance of that sign and I blow it, I can get in an accident, I can be harmed. So that that belief of blowing through it or not caring about that, you know, social norm uh had dire consequences for my well being. I got in an accident, now I'm in the hospital. Like that did not work out for me. So from an evolutionary standpoint that belief did not work out for me. Is it relative? Yeah. Like there's a law that says follow, you know, obey stop signs. I that's fine. But it was for me, it is, it is right to stop at that stop sign because if I don't, there are, uh, you know, dire consequences. You know, you can get into an accident, you can get a ticket. Um, so if we want to talk about truth, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird way to talk about that scenario, but I really enjoy, um, or I have found useful, uh, William James's definition of truth, um, which um, which I just lost my train of thought. Oh, he, well, says, I he say, says. I have to jump. In I want to hear William James's
0: definition. Okay, today.
1: what's what's William James's so, – well, William J. I mean, he's a literary writer, so I mean, he oh. describes it in many, many different ways. But I really liked his uh, one way of putting it: that true is that which is right in the way of belief. So, huh. what is so? what is true is what is right for me to believe. And now why would something be right in the way of belief? Well, it leads to successful action. It leads to satisfying action. It leads to, um, you know, me having values or goals or whatnot and then being successful in that you know if i have a belief if i'm stuck in the woods and i see some cow patties and you know if i'm lost in the woods i mean and i see some you know cow droppings i have reason to believe that there might be a farm nearby and so i'm going to follow though you know that evidence i'm going to follow those cow patties to hopefully a cabin where i can be saved you know if i do find that cabin then okay great that you know, that idea or that belief was true. It was right for me to, you know, think that that was true. If I was just a, you know, a complete, um, if I, if I just believe that everything is random in the world, um, then, you know, I see those things. I'm like, okay, well, there's a one random cow in the middle of these woods. That's, you know, taking a shit and, you know, I can't really, you know, act on, you know, on any belief right now. And I'm going to be stuck in the woods unless I randomly find the find the cabin. But if I, you know, follow those beliefs, then it's right for me to follow, you know, those things. It was right for me to believe it. It helped me in the end. I was successful in the end. Yes, yeah, Sister, so, what did you want to say?
2: I, I frankly, at least, uh, and this is, but I, I the, the rock in your backyard makes so much more sense to me as truth than any of the things you just said.
0: You're observing it and stuff like that. The thing that I would have the bigger problem with is, with what he said is it all comes from an assumption that something is true. So, like, let's take the stop sign example, right? You're assuming within that framework that your own suffering because you skipped the stop sign is bad. You're assuming that the suffering of the person who you accidentally hit is bad, Um, And I don't hear the logical framework behind making all these assumptions. And I understand you can jump to sort of cliche conclusions. You can be like, well, most humans throughout history have said human suffering is bad and humans don't like suffering. So therefore it's bad. So therefore I can determine something is true if it minimizes, you know, my own suffering or human suffering. But you're looking at certain actions or certain sort of beliefs about how the world works. And then determining their truths by their ability to optimize sort of PC ethics. And our problem with PC ethics is PC ethics like human suffering is bad. You shouldn't kill random people. You shouldn't, you know, that sort of stuff. Human happiness matters really gained popularity if you look at it from an aggregate context Because it helps society, like a society that believes that is going to outcompete a society that doesn't believe that, but not because of its inherent truth.
1: Well, I guess I I am not interested in inherent truth. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that anybody can have uh, objective, uh, ultimate truth. I don't believe that anyone is capable of it, even if that exists. Oh, okay, okay. So I'm not that interested in inherent or objective or absolute truth, um, you know, because I'm working from, you know, my... Yes, I'm interested in philosophy, but I'm not that interested in logic. I'm more interested in um, the psychology of belief and the psychology of truth. and the psych- You know, I'm more interested in what these things um, in the consequences of these ideas and beliefs in human action. I'm more interested in those things. Um, I think that. You know, we have tools for you know gathering facts, but I think that's what it is. I think that we are tool-using gatherers of you know of more tools. And what is knowledge? Knowledge is tools. All knowledge is tools. Uh, even truth is tools. You know, and truth has been used um, you know as a weapon in so many ways throughout history. Um, so I'd rather use truth or advocate the use of truth um, in ways that are mutually beneficial for everyone. Um, and you can call that, you know, cliche or, or PC ethics. But, you know, I think that most people are cliche on a daily basis. Um, you know, I'm I'm yeah. looking at the actual, um, you know, daily experience of human beings and not trying to overgeneralize about certain ideas, beliefs or truths um, that don't apply in other places. Uh, but I do recognize that there are some tools of gaining, you know, knowledge and gathering facts, which are used in our, um, you know, in our truth claims. I think that human beings use truth. I don't think that truth exists out there. I don't think that there's a essence or an entity called truth that we can grasp or see. I think that truth is a human construct that we use. Um, now I do things that I do think that some things are more truthful than others. Uh, Because those things, you know, work. And I don't think it's always just a subjective thing where it's like it works for my uh, happiness, like you were saying, or it works to alleviate suffering. I don't think that that's always the case. I think that um, the idea that uh, it it depends on what the goal is. So if my goal is to get um, is to use like a satellite, I need ideas or gather facts and use those facts in a truthful way that gets that satellite up in the air and working. So that has nothing to do with ethics necessarily. It's just what am, what is my goal, or what am I trying to achieve, and what are how can I use the facts that I have at hand to achieve that thing? You know, so me getting that satellite up and running would be truthful.
2: Yeah, or well, it's like truthiness, as as some would say, as well. And um, well, they, they, we never really there is no objective. Yeah, I, I totally am with you on that. And we basically just have to deal with the least wrong heuristics that we have at any given time.
0: Yeah. But it is interesting, the philosophical viewpoint he's presenting, that yeah. he's deciding the belief about the world is true based on the belief about the world that optimizes these other sort of uh, new culturally agreed upon or at least within modern Western society ethics. Um, but it doesn't always it
1: doesn't always have to align with the culturally agreed upon ethics. I can have my own set of ethics. I can have my own values or I can be trying to achieve a certain goal like I just said with like the satellite. That's not like a culturally agreed upon thing necessarily. It's just, this is what I'm trying to achieve now. How can I use the facts at hand to make that happen?
0: Okay, so it's like a different standard of evidence than any that we present in our book, which is very interesting. It's like a standard of ethics that is derived by deciding that a certain number of things have intrinsic value. And then ethics is, or, or, or as standards of evidence are defined by standards of evidence that maximize those things in practice. Mm
1: -hmm. So I didn't expect to be interviewed myself, uh, but you know, this is fun. Um, So I know, but
0: I find it very interesting because it's so it it defines what you're trying to create, which is very interesting. Um, So you're saying you don't actually, so if I can say this in other words, so pragmatic Christianity to you, a person decides the things that a belief should maximize. And you decided yours based on whatever metrics, but people don't need to necessarily agree with the, the things that you've decided have inherent value. Um, and then what they decide the truest form of Christianity is, is the form of Christianity when followed within a, a, a cultural context at a specific population level maximizes those outcomes that is likely the truest form of Christianity because that is a form of Christianity that God would have created.
1: So for me as a, specifically as a Christian, like I'm, I, it's pragmatic Christian, not pragmatic deist or theist or Buddhist or, you know, yeah. like it's Christian. So what makes it pragmatic Christian? Well, for me, um, I use ideals. So what an ideal for me is, is a, uh, an image, uh, uh Yeah, it's an image that I'm striving for um, that I think has value. I don't think that has absolute value for everyone always, but I think that everything that we do and believe, I think it's important for me to um, emphasize that when I say belief, I think that everything that we believe is something that we are betting on. We're betting on that thing being important. Um, I
0: agree 100%. 100%. Totally. Or,
1: or another way, which um, I like even better, is um, voting. I So what I believe is a vote towards that thing that I am idealizing. So I am voting... On the Christian ethic. I'm voting on Jesus Christ having the meaning that he has. I don't think that that's 100% true because, like I said, I don't look to origins because we can't always know the origins of things. I look to the results, I look towards the actions that they led to. and so for me I am voting on Jesus Christ being who he was. I'm voting on the significance of Jesus Christ and I recognize that other people aren't going to vote that way and that's perfectly fine with me. But I'm voting on that being, you know, the truth. Is that objectively the truth? Can we actually know that? Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> There's no uh, So hold on. I love we we've been sort of whispering to ourselves about what you're saying because we love it so much. But it's not the voting thing. It's the betting, but then we think of it in a voting context. Yeah. So what I'm imagining is a craps table, right? So you know a craps table, you have the red versus black, you've got all the various things, and then you've got a certain number of chips, and you're putting a certain number of chips on every every one of these um, numbers. But what makes it different than a regular craps table is that the payout if you're right about certain numbers is higher than the payout for other numbers and, um, the, the, what it's going to land on isn't exactly evenly distributed. Right. Mm. Um, and that's what makes a lot of forms of religious belief very interesting is that they basically say, well, the payout, if you have even one chip on our number or the payout, if you don't have every chip on our number, is either infinite or not infinite, right? Yeah. You get infinite payout if you have one chip on, you know, black number two. Right. Or, well, um, yeah, anyway, and so I want to hear your thoughts on this.
1: Yeah, that would be uh, Pascal's wager, and that is why I... Yeah, I'm familiar with that, yeah. That's why I choose the the, the language of voting over betting, because betting has a very passive um, connotation to it. You are betting on something and waiting to see what happens. Where I am not a... I don't believe in pacifism. I am an... You know, I believe in act, you know, activity and action. I believe that if there's a world you want, that you have to make it so. Um, so... The betting thing is, okay, I'm going to bet on Jesus Christ and wait and see what happens. For me, I say, no, I'm going to vote on Jesus Christ and live out the meaning that that has for me. Uh, I'm not going to just wait and, you know, wait on the evidence. Um, You know, it goes back to... um you know, an essay by William James, he talked about like the will to believe. And it was basically an argument got against this guy, Clifford, who talked about like the yeah. e- ethics of belief, which is basically, you know, it is ethically wrong to act on anything without sufficient evidence. And what William James was saying is we do that every single day in hundreds of ways where we don't have sufficient evidence to wait on. We have to just act, uh, you know, and um, you know, it's an existentialist view where it's like, there's real risk to the decisions we make. I am not, you know, going forth with the belief that I'm 100% right. I'm going forth with the belief that I could be completely wrong, but this is what I'm deciding to live my life by. Um, you know, and it's, it's subject to change. So I like the voting, uh, language more because it's more active. It's more, um, it, it, it's more like, it comes from more of a belief in free will and voluntarism. I believe that, you know, I have, you know, I have, I have free will. I have the choice to act and believe in the way that I want to. And I, you know, there's risk to the things that I do and believe because I can't go back in time and change things. So, you know, I'm looking at the evidence, I'm looking at what works, I'm looking at what is the best for me. And, you know, (laughs) I'm voting on that thing being true you know, even though I can change my mind later, I'm, you know, taking a risk on this thing. So that's why I like the voting language better than the betting language, just because the betting kind of has a passive thing. It's like, okay, I just have to make a quick little choice and then I'll just wait and see how things are. For Christianity, especially, and for religion, I don't like the passive um, way of thinking and believing because it's very much... Um, You know, I'll bet on this thing and, you know, I'm going to wait for God to do it. So, for instance, for an example, if I'm betting or believing in like salvation or heaven, I am going to believe in heaven and then wait for it to happen. I'm going to wait for God to do it. I'm going to wait for Jesus to come on his white horse and save everybody and make the world a better place. I don't like that because it means that we don't have to do anything about it. Um, so for me, I I like the voting where it's like, I'm going to vote on heaven. I'm going to vote on a better world tomorrow than the day yesterday. And I'm going to actually act towards the thing that's going to make it. So I'm not going to wait for a, you know, a God on a white horse to come and make everything better. I think that there's real risk in reality and um you know i don't like waiting for other people to do things for me Uh, i think that it's our own personal responsibility to make the world we want and to act in the world the way that we want to act or you know or to make our ideals come true i think that that is up to us so i'm very much um a believer in like self-responsibility and um making our beliefs or our ideals come true
0: We totally agree with that. Okay, so I want to engage you on a specific topic, Simone. Um, And I... Oh, God, what was it that I wanted to engage you on again? Well, I remember the first thing that I wanted to say, which is the reason why we sort of like the betting analogy is while we're familiar with Pascal Wager, the one thing we hadn't really thought of is that every moment of your life, you're basically putting another chip on the board with every action you make. Yes. And you see how...
1: Doubt. And you either you get s-
2: punished or rewarded, or not anything. Based
0: on where you're putting the chips on the board. Yeah. But Pascal's major sort of encouraged it. Yeah, but so he there the topic he talked a lot about there that I wanted to ask you your opinion of what was the the core topic he was talking about was it sort of objective truth?
2: No, the the activism of voting versus the pacifism of.
0: Yeah, um, but he was betting. also talking about um, the functionality the, what, of truth. Functionality of truth. Well, I mean, so Simone, your thoughts on sort of, it, it might've been objective truth. It might've been something like that.
2: Well, I mean, my whole thing is it doesn't matter. Uh, what I care about is if I maximize the thing that I care about. I don't yeah. care about what truth means and what it is. I care about if I do action X, will I get outcome Y that is better than outcome Z, which is if I did action.
0: Judged by what metrics. I mean, and I think that's the thing we don't talk about much. It's yeah. better than outcome Y judged by, well, how do you determine the metrics you're judging that by?
2: Right. Well, I mean, it depends on your values. It depends on your standards. No, no, no. But how
0: do you determine those yourself?
2: Oh, on what your standard of evidence is no, going to be? No, no, be? Not
0: the standard of evidence. Outcome X versus outcome Y. You said you want to maximize, but maximizing means you're maximizing it based on a value set. How do you determine the value set that you maximize something? Based?
2: Well, we talk about that in, in our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, on all yeah. the various things that you could come to value. And because we feel so... Strongly, that it's very hard to come to that conclusion with anyone's help without them trying to guide you to come to their conclusion. In the book, we give all these different conclusions at which you might arrive and then tell you why they might be. Why they're
0: all definitely wrong.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people complain like, yeah, well, you've given me all these things. I could believe it. But then you tell me why they're all wrong and then what am I supposed to do? Um, whereas other people who actually, I think, think through or engage intellectually more with all these different things, they'll, they'll say, oh, but it's obvious which one's right. You guys are totally skewed, except each time it's something different, which means that hopefully we've kind of done it right. But the idea is that that's that the, the metric by which you judge things. And I, I find it quite interesting the the way that you're judging truth and good outcomes, because they're very different from the way that that I might judge it, in that I don't necessarily like believe it's the way that, other
0: Christians judge. Yeah, like if some if someone
2: dies in the end or if you know someone's sad or cries or, you know, if someone gets injured or A lot of other things that people would say, well, this is a bad outcome, I could say that doesn't matter. What happens to my horse that I'm betting on? You know, what happens to my metric, which isn't necessarily number of lives to save, number of happy people. I mean, it could be. I'm not going to see what I value or not, but I think a lot of people end up choosing something they value and then still making decisions about other values that aren't in, not, aren't tied to that inherent thing of value because they're still just so indoctrinated to think that these things are good and these things are bad and, I mean, I agree that, like, yes, it's probably a good idea to follow stop signs because then we'd probably die a lot earlier
0: or get arrested and pay a and lot of And most people don't want to die early. Yeah, I mean, two people so are maximizing for an early death. It's,
2: it's generally but some could idea. be.
0: I mean, there are philosophical traditions that could maximize an early death. They just aren't philosophical traditions that get proselytized much because, you know, obvious weeding out. Well, there. and
2: in Miami, a lot of people have the philosophical or, or, or standard evidence of evidence, whatever, that leads them to believe that stop signs shouldn't be Well, followed. it's like
0: the shaker tradition of Christianity, right? Like, wait, am I thinking of the shakers? I have no those idea. Ones? The ones who believe that you shouldn't have sex, and, and therefore all members are converts from other factions of Protestant Christianity, typically. Um, and what it means is that their belief system either spreads or doesn't spread not by its merit. Like the reason it's almost completely died out. It's not because it didn't have merit because it's very bad at reproducing. Right. Right.
1: Um, Yeah. I was just looking at my notes. We are coming up to our agreed upon end time. I would love, (laughs) (laughs) I I would love for this to be a part one though, because there's a lot of things that I wanted to discuss about your book and we kind of did it in a roundabout way, but I'd love to um, talk to you guys again in the future if you guys are up for that.
0: I'd love to do that. Would you be up
1: for this one? So much. Awesome. I'm there. Uh, yes, so- you're
0: very good at engaging in topics about. You don't become angry about anything. You engage logically and you present new ideas. I like it.
1: Well, thank I mean, one of my values that I chose is, um, is both fallibilism and openness. So I am always looking for new ways to think about things because for me, you know, again, you know, this idea is coming from like the pragmatist tradition, which actually originally came from this guy named Alexander Bain, who was a scientist and philosopher, but he looked at belief as a habit for action. So earlier when you were asking Simone, like, how do you come up with your values? I think that Uh we come up with our values through our, our beliefs. I think what, what a belief is in a very uh, physiological way is a belief. All a belief is, is, you know, I mean, not all a belief is, but what a belief is practically is, a habit that we have, a mental habit that leads to action. And so I think that that's how we assess our beliefs and how we evaluate our beliefs uh, is through the action that they lead to. So that's Uh what I'm, that's what I'm working with. I wanted to end the conversation um, with a question since we talked about beliefs and values and stuff, and I have a lot more questions other than this, so we'll save it for part two, but how do you guys create a, uh, or what do you do when your values compete? So after you've already decided your values, after you've already decided what you're optimizing for, how do you, uh, you know, what do you do when those values compete with each other? And how do you create the hierarchy of values?
2: That's a really good question. Um, so I, I, I do have different things of inherent value and sometimes they do run contrary to each other. Which is to say that that to move one further, I may be actually hindering the other one,
0: like quite directly. Well, you basically you attach certain multiples to different values, right? So and for you example, also
2: look at where most you most are.
0: Reproduction and, and you know improving society have value in terms of scientific progress that increases you know so
2: but if each have equal value and you feel like you've you've output x units of one but only x minus 2 units of the other you'd better emphasize the other for a while
0: right um uh and what i would say is is for me when i look at how i output units of value it's more that there are certain things that i hypothesize might be the only things of value and so i put a few Uh, You know, we talk about the the craps table again, a few chips down on those things. And then there's other things that I'm fairly certain probably have value if we're wrong. Um, So, for example, like generic human happiness values. Right. Like, logically, I don't see a super strong reason for that. But um, if we're wrong, almost everyone believes it, and I don't feel totally confident in me saying I'm absolutely certain it doesn't have value, Um, and I do see some philosophical arguments that could be used to mean it has value. So I'm going to put you know, at least half of my chips on that because it sort of seems like that's what most people are betting on these days, and maybe there's some information I don't have access to. And then I'll spread some of my other chips across the table on some of the rare things that I think have a really strong logical argument for them, but for whatever reason, society really hasn't bought on with them yet.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot, and I just I just remembered an analogy that he use um, often about like the betting and the voting, um, and how a, a lot of times we can't really uh, put half our chips on one thing or half our chips on another. And the analogy is with marriage. I mean, you put all your chips on Simone. And you didn't put half your chips on Simone and half your chips on someone else. You chose her. And that was a bet. You know, there's a risk, you know, you don't know if she ended up being like a, uh, <laughs> like a psychopath that has this hidden, you know, <laughs> you know like you have she did, to, by the way. she did. She
0: is a psychopath, but I wanted a psychopath. Exactly. Well, there a psychopath you go. <laughs> I control. That's what I needed. Yes. Um, <laughs>
1: uh, but yeah, I like to think of marriage in the, in this context where it's like, you are putting all your chips on this person and you don't have all the evidence that she's going to end up being the person that you, you know, that you idealize or wanted. And I think that our ideals change over time anyway. So you have like with real human life, you know, not a video game where you you can't reset. You have to make decisions sometimes based on um, insufficient evidence that is going to lead to an outcome that you did not idealize to begin with. And so I think there's something to say about like a stoic philosophy where you kind of have to take the punches as they come and reassess which that was another topic i wanted to get to was how do you reassess your values over time because we are evolving human beings um but unless you have a very quick answer to that question we can save that for part two if you want
0: we don't have a quick answer it for <laughs> okay. part two and the second i would say is that marriage is such an interesting question for us because the book that we're working on right now you know we're pretty close to being finished with the first draft is on relationships and marriage mm-hmm. and everything like that. And I would say it's not as much of a crapshoot as you might think, as long as you're very good at training people and judging people's capacity for, for training. Um, but that's not the way society sees it or engages with the topic of long-term partners. So very few people have really thought through how to systematically determine whether or not you can create a near perfect partner for you
1: so is that is that an idea of who you choose to tether yourself to for life? Uh, like are you viewing that relationship in the context of um you are engaging in a mutual training of each other to become who you both agreed to become in the long run or?
2: Yeah, so essentially the the social contract into which we have entered is that we are not so much marrying the, the human body that is representing currently Simone or Malcolm, we've married the ideal of Simone and Malcolm, and our promise to each other is to make that person the best possible manifestation of their ideal self.
0: But to do that, you do have to make some judgments about generic cognitive capacity mm. and generic ability to, you know, um, suppress instinctual desires and ideas. They're the things that you really just want to believe about the world because um, those are the things that inhibit training and inhibit the maximal version of yourself.
2: Exactly. And this is not something that everyone could do for sure. And it requires a lot of trust and a lot of mutual mm. respect and understanding. But still... Uh, it, it seems to make for a very safe long-term bet because we always can trust the other person to be acting in, in, in the best interests of the person that we aspire to be.
1: Well, I love all of that. And I am looking forward to talking more about that um, in part two. Um, so to close, is there anything that you guys want to promote or say to the audience uh, before we close out?
0: Uh, Our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Life, is literally as cheap as we can make it on Amazon. It's 99 cents, so please do check it out. It is... As weird as we are, um, see, my friend of fun, but it's also as unpleasant as we are. So it is not a fun read. Mm -hmm. Um, But all the money from it does go to the Pragmatist Foundation, which is meant to promoting sort of our worldview, which, as you can tell, is a little different from yours as well, because we mean pragmatists in a vernacular sense. Mm -hmm. And we also focus much more on the idea of um, uh, we don't assume certain values are attempting to be maximized. Um, whereas most people do I mean most people assume this value is good And this value is bad uh, But we think we present a unique view That a lot of your viewers may find um, Compelling yeah. or, or interesting to insult
1: Well I love your guys' worldview. I love your guys' unique uh, perspective on life That's why I wanted to have you on Thank you guys so much for coming on
0: We're thoroughly
2: looking forward to chatting again soon
1: Okay we'll, we'll set that up